Thank you, Matt. As we continue this morning in the Word of God in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, we continue this morning in a series of messages we began last month, just simply entitled Gather. And we're, we're talking in these days about why we do what we do here in this place on Sunday morning. We began this series uh, with a message called We Gather to Sing. We talked about a biblical precedent for, for singing as we gather together. We, we continued on talking about we gather uh, to preach. Why is the preaching of God's word central to our, our worship gatherings? Uh, last week, uh, Tim preached for us, uh, We Gather to Pray. And I'm so thankful that the Lord has led us in these days to more extended and purposeful times in prayer in the midst of uh, these worship gatherings that we have each week. And this morning, uh, we're going to talk about the fact that we also gather to give. And I want you to think about this morning, uh, that time during each service that we have when we pass the baskets. Why do we do that? Is it just to keep the lights on and, and, and pay the staff salaries? Or is there something greater happening in that moment when the basket comes down your aisle and you choose whether or not to contribute? We're going to talk about the fact that we gather to give this as an act of worship as we see it displayed here in 1 Corinthians 9. Now what's happening here is the Apostle Paul in, in 1 Corinthians 8 and, and 9, sorry, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, he is reminding the church at Corinth of a special offering that he had invited them to participate in a full year before their reception of this letter. The Apostle Paul was going around to all the churches that he had planted and he was seeking to obtain from them a special offering that would be used to meet the needs of their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. The church at Jerusalem was especially impoverished both due to a, a famine and just to the fact that, that most of them, they weren't the upper crust of the Jerusalem society. Uh, many of those in the church at Jerusalem uh, were slaves or were of the, of the lower classes of their day. And, and they had some desperate needs that the Apostle Paul was seeking to meet through the prosperity of some of the younger, other congregations like uh, the congregation at Corinth. And so he had let them know a year in advance, I'm going to be coming and, and collecting an offering, and I want you to be ready. I want you to be ready to give generously for the needs of your brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. And right here in these verses that we read together just a moment ago, right here in these verses, he gives to us a, a biblical understanding of why we give and why giving would be a part of our experience of worshiping the living God as we come together to do so each Sunday morning. And so here's the key question for the day that I believe is answered by these three verses why do we give and how must we give? And this morning in the message, points one and three are going to answer the why question. And I hope that point two will answer the how question, how we must give. And so let's dive in this morning. First of all, the first point this morning in verse six is we find here God's law for the giver. God's law for the giver. Once more, the Apostle Paul writes, the point is this. 
The main idea of this whole section in chapters 8 and 9 of his letter, he says his main idea is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Now this and many other uh, scriptures that reference reaping and sowing uh, fall under what has often been referred to as the law of the harvest. Now I'm referring to it as the law of the giver because of the context this morning. Uh, but we've, uh, there's many, many, there have been many, many writings about the law of the harvest as it's described in scripture. In the Old Testament you find a dozen or more passages that explicitly talk about reaping and sowing. In the New Testament, you find a dozen or more passages that explicitly talk about the idea of reaping and sowing. This idea of planting and harvesting becomes, in the Scriptures, so often a reminder of a couple of things. First of all, it's a reminder that God created a world that is based around the idea of cause and effect. We know that, right? In your early science classes in elementary school, surely you learned about the laws of cause and effect. And science is by no means opposed to the things of God. Science is merely unraveling and unveiling the things that God put into place in the first place, if it's true science. And so we see here this reminder, God's law for the giver. What, what, is, what does this entail? Well, first of all, it means this, that you will reap what you sow. Now, how many of you heard that as kids growing up? Mom or dad used that against you. Now, most often, this was used as a disciplinary tactic. Now, son, now daughter, you know you will reap what you sow. And what they meant is, if you keep doing those dumb things you're doing now, it's going to produce bad consequences in your future. That's what they meant, right? But more often, when we find the law of the reaping and sowing, the law of the harvest in Scripture, most oftentimes it's not in the context of negative things, of reaping evil for the bad we've sown in our lives. More often, the Scriptures utilize this analogy, this metaphor, to teach us about sowing good things in our lives that we might reap a glorious and wonderful harvest. But you will reap what? You sow it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. Very foundational chapter for our understanding of the world, God's creation. And he said, and so let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. Notice that. Each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to its own kind. Trees bearing fruit is in which is their seed, each according to what? Its kind. And God saw that it was good. You will reap what you sow. It's so foundational to our understanding of the world in which we live. It's not just an agricultural thing. This is a life thing, folks. You will reap what you sow in kind. Galatians chapter 6. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. The one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap 
corruption. The one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So we have negative sowing and we have positive sowing right here in the same verse. Those who sow to the flesh, the sinful nature, those who continue to sow sin in their lives will reap the consequences of that in terms of destruction and death that comes as the result of sin. But at the same time, There's a message of hope here that those who sow to the Spirit, those who sow godly things in their lives will from the Spirit reap eternal life. You reap what you sow. But you also, second law for the giver, you also reap later than you sow. Now, I don't know about you, but this can be frustrating. In our immediate society, in our society that wants to have it now or sooner than now, in a society where if we, if we go to a restaurant and we wait longer than three minutes for our food to be in front of us, we're frustrated. In the society in which we live, this law of the sower kind of gets under our skin because we don't want to wait. But it's a beautiful law. It's one that God reminded Noah of when he got off the ark. In his covenant with Noah, God said this, While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Now some of us are really wanting this winter to cease. I'm hearing more talk of snow in the forecast. And, 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 and we're going, please, no, we've, have we not had enough of this winter? Can it not yet cease? But even this is a reminder to us of God's promise right here in Genesis chapter 8. Eventually, the winter will cease, and then spring and summer will come, and these things are a reminder of the goodness of God. And that in these things, we see this law of the harvest that while we sow in one season, we reap in another. Parents, this is important. This is so important that we understand that the things that we sow into the lives of our children when they're still under our roof are not just for that time. In fact, they're not really for that time at all. They're for a later time. Therefore, a time when that child will have a home of his or her own. And so as we sow into their lives the word of God, we trust what the Proverbs says, that when they are old, they will not depart from it, that it will bear fruit in their lives according to godliness later on. Now, sometimes as parents, we want it now, don't we? Let's be honest. We want to see those effects in the lives of our children now, but we have forgotten the law of the harvest, which says you sow now, but you reap later. That's according to God's design. And it's good for us because it teaches us patience and perseverance. So Galatians 6 says, Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season, at the right and appropriate time, we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So we press on, we persevere, we walk forward with great patience, trusting that we will reap what we sow. It'll just be later The reaping will be later than the sowing. And finally, third law for the giver is that you reap more than you sow. Now, we like this part. 
We like this reality that God has given that we reap more than we sow. And that's what he's describing here in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly, but whoever sows bountifully, or literally the Greek word there for bountifully means with blessing. Whoever sows with blessing will also reap with blessing. That it will abound, as we'll see before we finish this morning. The reality that you will reap more than you sow. It's been said in every ear of corn, there is a bushel of corn. And so the idea being that that what we plant will produce more than, than we think that it's going to produce. And so in Genesis 26, Isaac sowed in in the land of promise, and he reaped in that same year a hundredfold. It was multiplied by the hand of God, and the Lord blessed him, and he became rich, and he gained more and more until he had become very wealthy. It was in that simple obedience of sowing the seed that Isaac reaped the benefit. Luke chapter 6, Jesus spoke of these things and said, Give, and it will be given to you. In what way? Well, it'll be in good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. I love that picture, running over. It'll be poured out into your lap so much that it'll be running over. This is how God desires to bless. We do not serve a stingy God that wants to hold back his blessings from us. That wants to eke them out little by little. No, his desire is to shower his blessings upon us. And yet, we must understand that these laws apply to us. Once again, you will reap what you sow. You will reap later than you sow. And you will reap more than you sow. This is foundational for our understanding, our right understanding of the proper attitude of giving that we're going to look at here in just a moment. But before we get there, I love this verse from Hosea 10, another reaping and sowing passage. So sow for yourselves righteousness. Sow the things of God, the character of God, the nature of God into your life. Sow His Word into your life, and therefore you will reap what? You will reap steadfast love. This is the Hebrew word hesed, the covenant love of God. The unfailing love of God is what you will reap as you sow godly things into your life. Break up your fallow ground, for it's time to seek the Lord. It's time to seek the Lord that He may come and rain righteousness upon you. It's God's desire to rain righteousness upon us. To flood our lives with His righteousness. To break up the fallow ground of our hearts. So we not only see God's laws for the giver, we also see God's love for the giver. Man, the end of verse 7 is so dear to me. It's one of the earliest portions of Scripture I can remember memorizing. I don't know if it was vacation Bible school or if it was Sunday school, but I remember at a very young age them leading us. We got a little star on the chart for memorizing God loves a cheerful giver. I still remember those words. I didn't know them in their context of the time, but I understood something about the heart of God from God loves a cheerful giver. I understood that God had a special love for those who who gave of themselves, not with apprehension, but with joyfulness. 
And so let's talk about that for a moment. What does he instruct us in? Let's read it again together. He said, so each one must give as he has decided in his heart. So is giving optional in the lives of Christians? No, he says each one must give. But then notice what he says. This almost sounds contradictory. Each one must give, but not reluctantly or under compulsion. So Paul's saying, hey, listen, church, you must give, but not under compulsion, not because you have to. You must, but not because you have to. That almost sounds contradictory until you understand that that the fullness of this verse is wrapped up in the end there, that it's God who loves or showers his love upon the cheerful giver. So you must give, but don't give from internal pain or external pressure, is what he's saying there. Not reluctantly. In other words, not, not out of guilt. Not giving back to the Lord because you're hoping to get something from Him or because you feel guilty toward Him, but giving out of a heart of gladness because of His grace and mercy in your life. That's why we give. Not out of internal pain, nor out of external pressure. Not because this morning you hear the preacher preaching about giving, so you feel like, well, I better give because of that external pressure, that that compulsion that he's talking about there. No, it's not that. It's neither out of internal pain or guilt, nor is it out of external pressure, nor is it in any way us looking at others and saying, well, I want to give more than so-and-so gave. It's not a competition here. The reality is we give as an act of worship unto God our God. But I love what Warren Wearsby said. He said, if it's acceptable to make financial commitments for things like telephones and cars and credit cards, then certainly it must be acceptable to make commitments for the Lord's work. That's why he says each one must decide in his heart This is a decision that takes place before the giving. Now, I do think that there's a place for spontaneous giving among the people of God, for recognizing a need, and right there in the moment, giving to meet that need. But here, he is talking about a decision in our hearts to give, to honor God and meet the needs of those around us. So Jesus said in Matthew 6, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal because they cannot. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is the baseline. This is the baseline of giving. Now I know in, in this moment when some of you uh, realized that we were going to have a message on giving this morning, you thought you were getting ready to get a good guilting. I hope that's not what you will hear from me this morning. And in fact, I'm not even going to talk to you about tithing this morning. I know that many of you thought we were going to have a message this morning on on tithing. Let me say one thing about tithing, and then we're going to move on. My understanding of tithing would be this. I know there would be a variety of understandings of tithing biblically. Here would be my understanding of tithing. Tithing, setting aside 10%, the first fruits of our income for the Lord's work, and, and, and doing that at the very beginning uh, of, our, of our paycheck, so to speak, that tithing I would see not as a, a standard for what all of our giving should be, but as a starting point for where our giving might go. 
And I'll just leave it at that. You can disagree with me and send me emails this week. That's fine. So we're going we're gonna to look here, though, and see that we not only don't give from internal pain or, or external pressure, but we also, this is so important, that we understand that we give with great purpose and with grand pleasure. That's why he says each one must decide in his heart. That's where giving begins. Church, don't miss that. Giving doesn't begin in the moment when you open the checkbook. Giving doesn't begin in the moment when you crack open your wallet. Giving begins here. Giving begins in the heart. And so you decide in your heart what you will give long before you ever drop it in the basket. And you give out of great pleasure in the fact that you have come to realize that the giver of all good things has given you immeasurably more than all you could ask or think. That the giver of all good things has rescued your sin-sick soul by the power of the gospel and his blood poured out at the cross. That you recognize that the giver of all good things has given you life and breath and every good thing. And so you can give out of grand pleasure. And literally that word there where it says God loves the cheerful giver. The Greek word for cheerful is so fun. It's the Greek word hilaron from which we get the English word hilarious. Literally, we could say, God loves a hilarious giver. And so it would not be out of bounds, though you might find it odd. It would not be out of bounds that when the offering plate goes by, there would be a chuckle that moves through the crowd. It would not be out of bounds that smiles would erupt on our faces as we put that check in the offering basket. It would not be out of bounds because God loves a hilarious giver. God loves the fact that we can give out of hearts that are so filled with joy because of what he has done for us that the gift doesn't even seem like a gift. It certainly doesn't seem like a sacrifice. God loves a cheerful giver. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 reminds us of his gift toward us. This is why we give. Above all things, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Every time that basket comes by, may you be reminded of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor that you by His poverty might become rich. He took our spiritual poverty and gave us His spiritual riches. He took the death that rightfully belonged to us and gave us life everlasting. And that's why we can be hilarious givers. That's why we can give with a heart that's overjoyed. And yes, for many, that will mean financial giving, giving of our treasures unto the Lord. But it'll also, for many more, it'll mean giving of our time unto the Lord. For many others, it'll be giving of our talents unto the Lord. It'll be whatever has been given to us as an opportunity to give it back to God simply as a way of saying, thank you. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the life that you've given me. Thank you that every good thing that I have comes to me from your hand. And now I get this small opportunity to give back to you. No matter how big the check is, I have this small opportunity to give back to you just a little bit to say thank you, God. It's the heart of gratitude that gives with generosity. And that's what God desires. That's what God desires. 
And so as we finish this morning, let's talk in verse 8 of God's limits for the giver. That may sound strange, especially based upon what we see there. God's limits for the giver. What limits are there? Look at verse 8, and God is able. God is able to make all grace abound to you. Notice the alls here. All grace abound to you. So that having all sufficiency, that word could also be translated contentment. It means that you have all the inward resources that you could possibly need. That having all sufficiency, that you will in all things, at all times, you may abound in all or every good work. This is God's five-fold provision for us, and it is summarized by the word all, that he has withheld nothing from us that is necessary. God is able. That's the basis for our giving, church. The basis for our giving is not, I'm able, I've got enough extra that I can give. No, the basis for our giving is, he is able. You say, well, what is he able to do? I'm glad you asked that. Let me share with you from the scriptures what our God is able to do. Acts chapter 20. God is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. We sang about that inheritance this morning, didn't we? Very first song. In Romans chapter 16, God is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 3, God is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. 2 Timothy chapter 1, God is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. He's talking about the gospel there, by the way. Hebrews chapter 2, God is able to help those who are being tempted. Hebrews chapter 7, God is able to save, and not just to save, but to save to the uttermost, to the nth degree, those who draw near to God through him, through Christ. Since he, since Jesus, always lives to make intercession for them. James chapter 4, God is able to save and to destroy. Go and read that in its context. It'll humble you. And finally, Jude 24, God is able to keep you from stumbling, to present you blameless before the presence of his glory. And how does he do it? With great joy. And so why does God love a cheerful giver? Why does he have a special demonstration of love toward those who give with joyful hearts? Because that's how he gives. That's how he has given. He has not given toward us in some uh, form of obligation as though he owed us something as our creator. He has not given toward us out of some uh, kind of internal guilt over what has happened in the world. No, God gives out of a heart that overflows with joy, so much so that it says of Jesus in the book of Hebrews that it was for the joy set before him that he went to the cross. Never forget that. It was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross and scorned its shame and is now seated at the right hand of God. And what is he doing there? He is praying for you with joy. He is interceding for you with gladness. I know so often we can come to our prayer times and it seems like we come there out of obligation. 
Oh, I know that I should pray. But Jesus prays for you with exceeding joy. It is never out of a guilty burden that He intercedes on your behalf. And He prays Jude 24 over you continually. That you would be kept from stumbling. That you would be presented blameless before Him. And that it would all be with great joy. So then what are God's limits for the giver? You're going to love this. There are no limits. We can give lavishly. We can give ridiculously. We can give hilariously because our God is limitless. Do you not see that in verse 8? What is He withholding? In another place, he writes, if he has not withheld his only son for, uh, from us, if he didn't keep back his only son from us, but instead sent him to do for us what we could never have done for ourselves, he took the death that should have been ours to bring us life that only rightfully belonged to him. If he's not withheld his son from us, well, how will he not also give us all things? And that's what's described there in verse 8. And so we can give lavishly because our God is limitless. I love what Billy Graham's grandson, Tulian Chavigian, said. He said, the gospel alone liberates you to live a life of scandalous generosity. I love what he says there. Unrestrained sacrifice, uncommon valor, and unbounded courage. And so this is why we give with cheerful hearts because we get the gospel. That's the baseline this morning. Why do we give? Because we get the fact that He gave far more abundantly than we could ever begin to give. We can give lavishly because our God is limitless. And we also recognize that it is His abundant grace that produces or yields our abundant good works. Look with me again at verse 8. Don't miss this. In the beginning there, he says, God is able, able to do what? To make all grace abound to you. In another place, Paul describes God's grace as super abundant. It just keeps going. It's grace upon grace upon grace. It's blessing upon blessing upon blessing. It's gift upon gift upon gift. It's never ending the grace of God. But it has in it a purpose. It's, not, its purpose is not that you might spend it all upon your own pleasures. No, its purpose is found there at the end of the verse. That its grace superabounds to us for what purpose? So that you may abound in every good so that you may abound in your service to others. So that you may abound in what you place in the offering basket. So that you may abound in your proclamation of the gospel. So that you may abound in your prayer time. So that you may abound in your reading of the word of God. So that you may abound in your relationships. So that you may abound in the raising of your children to love Christ and give their lives for Him. So that you may abound in every good work. And it all started with His good work on your behalf. His grace superabounds to you so that you might superabound in good works for the sake of His name, to the glory of your God and the good of those He places around you. 
And then I love how he finishes this chapter. Talking about giving. Asking them to be prepared to give, to decide in their hearts what they'll give. Helping them recognize the super abundant grace of God in their lives because they've been given so much and have just this beautiful opportunity to give back just a, a, a little morsel of the, of the abundant feast that they have been given. Does this not speak to us? Here in the United States of America, we are living right now in the most prosperous nation that, that has ever existed on this earth, and yet we find ourselves among the most stingy people that have ever lived. The average American gives less than 2% of their income away to, to churches and other charitable causes. 2%, folks. And yet we have more. We have more than any other people that have ever lived on this planet. Just by being an American, you may not feel like you're rich, but just by living in the United States of America, you are most likely more wealthy than 98% of the people on the planet just because you're here. But we act as if we don't have enough when His grace superabounds, when His provision for you is limitless. And the reminder is that you never give because God is in need. You give because you recognize you are in need. You are in need of His grace day by day. You are in need of His presence in your life. And so Paul comes all the way to the end of this chapter, and he can't help. In a message on giving, I love the fact that he ends with a word of immense gratitude, but it's not to the Corinthians. His immense gratitude is this, so thanks be to God for his inexpressible, indescribable, beyond words gift. What's he talking about? He's talking about the gospel. Look two verses earlier and you'll see it. His gift of God in Jesus Christ, the cross was taken for us so that we could have life. And he's saying, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. And so when we pass the baskets and when it comes before you, may your thought not be, what can I afford? But may your thought simply be this, I have been given much. And the ultimate giver is my Savior, who took the death that should have been mine and gave me the eternal life that I never could have purchased for myself. We give because we have been given much, because the giver of life took our death so that we could have eternal life and all the riches of his glory. This is why we pass the baskets. Because it is simply an opportunity to say, thanks be to God for His inexpressible, beyond words gift. I'm going to leave you with one final thought this morning. The reality is this. You can give without love. You can write the check. You can toss in the bills. You can give without love. I hope you understand this morning, God has no desire for that. He doesn't need your money. You can give without love, but you cannot love without giving.
just impossible. You say, what basis do you have for that? Look at the love of God. For God so loved the world. Wretched sinners like us that he gave. He gave his best. He gave his one and only son. That whosoever would believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Church, we were condemned already by our sinful rebellion against God, and he came and rescued us. So giving is no sacrifice. It is hilarious joy. As a way of responding to the word of God this morning, we want to give you an opportunity to give. You're saying, you already passed the baskets once. We're not doing that again. We have a special fund around here that we started a few years back called our Deacon Servant Ministry Fund. This fund goes to do much like what was happening here in 2 Corinthians 9. There were needy believers that couldn't provide for their own physical needs. And this was being collected by the Apostle Paul to help meet those needs. That's what our Deacon Servant Ministry Fund does right here. It's used for needs within this body. Sometimes it goes to, to pay certain bills for those who are having a hard time financially. It's gone to build wheelchair ramps. It's, it's gone to help with moving expenses. There's been numerous things that this money has been used for over the last few years. But each time it's an opportunity for the, the body to be a blessing to members of the body. It's a beautiful thing. And so we want to give you an opportunity as we finish up today. We, we've had such good use of this over the last several months that we've found ourselves in a place where that fund is at a, at a low point. And we thought, what better response to the word this morning than to give you an opportunity uh, to give toward this special fund. And so what we're going to do after we share this final song is we're going to have a couple of our, of our deacons standing back in the missions corner uh, with some baskets. Please feel no obligation. That's why they're not going to stand at the doors so you feel like that you're obligated in some way to give. You're going to have to go a little bit out of your way. But we want to encourage you this morning, if you would, if you would practice what's been preached. We, to, we let you know earlier this week through our one-call system that we were going to be doing this so that you could decide in your heart in advance, perhaps, and maybe you still come and say, I'm not yet, I'm not ready to give this morning. We're going to take up an offering for this again in two weeks. So you'll have an opportunity there as well. But this is used for such beautiful things in the, in, the, in the body life of our church. I just want to encourage you toward it. But most of all, the greatest encouragement for your giving, just never forget this. The reason we give is because the giver of all th good things rescued us in the gospel. You don't need any other reason. You don't need this pastor to twist your arm you don't need us to pass the basket two or three times. You don't need to know what the person next to you is given so you can give a little bit more. You don't need any of those things. You just need to know the power of Christ and his resurrection in your own life. And then you too will say thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift.